Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring in Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord said to him, Separate those who lap water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, But the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples who had settled in the valley, thick as locusts, their camels could no more be counted than the sands on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as the men were telling a friend, his, just as a man was telling his friend a dream. I had a dream, he said. I, found a, I saw a loaf of barley bread come tumbling down into the midnight camp. It struck the tent, the, it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend reported, This can be no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and in his interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in their hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do as ex exactly as I do. When I and all the men 
with me blow their trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets, broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand, holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Gideon, week two. Last week uh, we looked at how Gideon had uh, destroyed the idols. He had to take care of some housekeeping first, take care of the enemies on the inside before he could take care of the enemies on the outside. And now we're going to look at this second part of Gideon's story. Uh, We've been in this series for a while now called The Judges. And it's been a little bit different, hasn't it? Some of the stories have been a little bit eye-opening, and uh, some of the just the accounts that we read are, are oftentimes bloody. There, uh, got it's a, it's a just to give the context in case you haven't been with us for much of this series. The, this book of Judges comes pretty early on in the Old Testament, uh, but it comes after creation, of course, after. God had chosen a people to be his own people and the people of Israel after he had promised Abraham that they would inherit this promised land. It comes after Moses had delivered the people out of Egypt and after Joshua had led them into the promised land that God had promised to them so long before. And now they had the land, but Joshua passed away. And the other elders who had been there with Joshua leading the way with them. They passed away. And another generation raised up into power and authority in Israel. And they didn't have the faith that Joshua and those elders had. And they kicked off what we've been calling the Judges Cycle. A cycle of sin that many of us have dealt with in our lives. Some of us may still be dealing with it. It's a cycle that we should be familiar with. And it's it's an age-old cycle. But they began this of rebelling against God and choosing to worship the way that the cultures around them, the pagan cultures around them worshipped. Choosing those gods over the one true God. And then scripture says in each of these accounts that God hands them over. He says, okay, if you want to serve those gods instead, you can have those gods. And inevitably the people would become oppressed by the very nations they were trying to emulate and be like. And they would cry out to God. And then God would raise up a judge or a deliverer. And these judges, these deliverers were flawed and imperfect people as we've seen time and again. Most of them weren't even the people that 
the flawed and imperfect people would have picked <laughs> to be their leader. Very unexpected individuals that God chooses. And each of them flawed, imperfect. God choosing to work through flawed and imperfect people in a flawed and imperfect world to try to work towards his ultimate plan, which came in the person of the ultimate judge and deliverer who was not flawed and who came to finish off this cycle once and for all. His name was Jesus. And he delivered in a way that these imperfect judges never could. But today we look at Gideon. This ancient account written for us some 3,000 years ago happened before that. Ancient and yet bearing truth for our lives today as we've seen time and again throughout this series. We'll see what Gideon has in store for us today. Um, you know, as we've shared with you, you know, Julie's been sick and this isn't something new. We actually, um, with the first pregnancy, went through a very similar thing. And when we started going through this and we were completely lost as to what was happening, we, there was a couple in our church who we were close friends with and still are. And um, they, she had actually gone through the same thing with her pregnancies, except one of them was even worse and had gone full term sickness had to be hospitalized. Eventually they sent her home with a feeding tube. Uh, I mean, just as sick as you can possibly be with a pregnancy for the full term. And uh, so to say they could empathize was an understatement, you know. Uh, But I remember he came to me pretty early on, her husband did. And he said, you know, Neil, something I learned early on, and maybe you can learn it before I did, is that it's okay to ask for help. And this was coming from a guy that has is maybe even more type A than I am, you know. And so it's hard for us sometimes to learn that lesson, you know, because in our culture, you don't ask for help; you just manage, right? Our our, our culture is is pretty unique, really, in the in the history and scope of time. Where I mean, in the past, communities were much more tightly knit. There was a lot less privacy and individualism. I mean, look at a variety of cultures. There's the, the culture that like, Jesus grew up in where families just like added on to the house, you know, and you'd have multiple generations living in one home in one place. Or uh, look at the Native American tribes and the way that they lived here, you know. And, and that's those kinds of cultures, that's more the norm throughout history. But we live in a time and a place where where we believe in the individual spirit, right? And the and the I can do it kind of thing. And we get this from a from an early age. I mean, Hadley's on this new kick lately where she, she likes to say, No, I can do it all by myself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it usually works fine if we have an extra ten minutes, you know. <laughs> but we all kind of carry that to some degree, don't we? I mean, I don't know. It's a struggle for Julie and I sometimes because we tend to be probably more private 
than we should be even you know we want to keep everything private and not share anything that we're dealing with and I don't know what it is about us that wires us that way but um, but even if you're not wired that way you know we just all seem to have this tendency that we feel like we ought to be able to handle it on our own without much help and, and, and we and we look at I mean that's what all the movies are about the TV shows are about right it's it's not about asking a friend for help usually it's about being the one that helps or being the one that can handle it you know or I'm tough enough to take care of my family I never admit weakness it's not very popular to admit weakness or to admit that we can't take care of it on our own that we do need help I submit to you today though that it's possible that you'll never find the strength that you need without admitting your weakness could it be possible that you'd never find the strength that you need for this life without first admitting your weakness. That's what we're going to explore today as we look at Gideon. And as we shared last week, this is another instance where the Israelites followed that cycle. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Still says yes of the Lord. Sorry about that. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. That's a shorter time period than some of the other times that God handed, people, handed them over to the surrounding nations. But when you read between verse 1 and 6, you see that for those seven years, they wreaked havoc in Israel. Every time Israel would grow up a crop, the Midianites would come through and destroy it. So that they were impoverished. Terribly so. So God handed him over, but then eventually he raised up Gideon, as we read last week. And he told Gideon, I'm going to choose you. And Gideon said, me? I'm the least in my family, and I'm the, and our family's the least in our tribe? Why me? But see, God is always choosing people that don't make sense in our eyes. And so he raises up Gideon, and Gideon worships God in response, but God takes it a step further and says, Gideon, you need to take out the altars that your father has to Baal and to and the Asherah pole. You need to take those out and create a right kind of altar and burn that pagan pole in the process of giving me an offering you need to clean up this pagan worship before you can truly worship me as your God. So Gideon did that and it wasn't popular. People wanted to kill him. And his father intervened said, don't you think Baal can take care of himself if he's such a big bad God? So uh, that's when they named him. You may have noticed in this passage that we read today, Jerob Baal, which meant he contends with Baal. So they turned him over, let Baal do with him as he wishes. So then they prepare for battle. And they round up 32,000 
men to go into battle. That sounds like a big number. In fact, God says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. And you can just hear Gideon saying, huh? (laughs) Come again there, God? You you say, too many? (laughs) Too many? I mean, you've seen this army, right, that raised through and just plows us over every year. I think we could use all the help we could get, right? Um, You know, 32,000 seems good to me. I don't know. But God says, why don't you send home all the ones that are scared? So he says, all right, guys, if you're scared, you can go on home. Now, you would think that they, you know, they'd at least want to act like they were tough. But 22,000 of them say, okay, I'm... (laughs) that's me and that tells you something about the odds doesn't it of what the enemy force must look like if even standing there with 32,000 men there's 22,000 of them trembling and it's pretty I mean I give kudos to the 10,000 that stood there and watched two thirds of the group leave although they're like no I'm staying here (laughs) (laughs) maybe they just didn't want to go home I don't know (laughs) And then he sees that 10,000. He says, you know what? That's still too many. Yeah? <laughs> and so he comes up with the, you know, God says, you know, if they drink the water on their knees and send them home, if they drink the water with their, you know, cupping it in their hands, then keep them. And I've heard people, you know, speculate that maybe, um, well, you know, obviously with the 22,000, you didn't really want them anyway. If they're that scared that they're willing to admit it and go home, you know, then it's probably not going to be good to have them in a battle situation, right? Where they all of a sudden are retreating mid-battle or something. So that makes sense. But then this water thing doesn't make as much sense. And I mean, I've heard people speculate that maybe, maybe that was like a sign that they were street savvy, you know, they were battle savvy. They knew that they needed to beware at all times <laughs> drink a little water keep the sword handy and uh, but but we don't know that for sure and there, I mean there's it's just speculation and, and it's entirely possible that God just said well here's a funny way we can get them down <laughs> to 300 we'll just take the ones that drink funny you know <laughs> it's a, we, we don't know for sure but there's a, obviously a divine purpose at work as God is whittling down this force from 32,000 to 300. And he gives the reason here early on. Too many people for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. (laughs) Now if 300 get the job done, people would have to say, only God. So, to top it off, this cracks me up. I mean, the, you hear the story, I don't know, I heard the story growing up in Sunday school and stuff. You know, I just always take it for granted. Yeah, you know, they went out there with the pots and the torches and the trumpets and they, you know, sent the enemy running. But if you stop and think about that, okay, first of all, there's just 300 of you. That's insane enough. And then your fearless leader stands up and says, Okay, here's your pot. (laughs) And here's your trumpet. And here's your torch. And you're like, I just have two hands. (laughs) And you're handing me a pot and a trumpet. (laughs) 
hopefully they had a strap or something, you know, I guess, for the trumpet or I don't know. But they've got, a, they've got three things to carry. And none of them seem like they're going to do much good. I mean, how many of you would pick a pot, you know, to go into battle with against one dude, much less against a bunch of them, you know? Watch it, man. <laughs> I'll break this thing over your head. <laughs> Only God. This principle is something that we see again. You know, I, I try to point out these major themes that we see across Scripture, and this is one of them of God doing things in such a way that people have to say, Only God could have done it. And we see this time and again in Scripture. I mean, you see it with the Exodus. And you see it with, uh, you know, taking the Battle of Jericho. You know, they're marching around this wall, blow some trumpets, the whole thing falls down. (laughs) Only God. Of course, you see it here in this story. You see it with David, who as a child goes up against this giant that even the grown men are afraid of and has the faith to say basically it's not about me and how qualified I am to fight you the deal is God's on my side and he's delivered you into my hands that same boy grew up to be a warrior and a king and as such wrote Psalms like Psalm 20. And in Psalm 20, he wrote, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And David understood this principle as well as anybody did. That other people would put their confidence in the things that make sense to put their confidence in in a way. Their power, their the number of war horses or chariots or their military prowess but he would put his trust in the Lord his God and David time and again did things that you'd have to say only God could do it and nowhere do we see this principle play out more than we see it with Jesus I mean, if you think that handing 300 men some pots and torches and trumpets is crazy, consider taking on hell itself by just saying, go ahead, execute me, scorn me, shame me, mock me, torture me, do your worst. But then Satan, watch out, because I'm not done with you yet. And the rest of us sit back, much like the other 31,700 men of Gideon who didn't end up having to lift a finger. And we sit back and we see what Jesus has done for us and we say, only God. I mean, I did nothing. And he saved me. And that's where God wants us. The Apostle Paul 
also experienced this principle in his life. And he wrote about how he had this, what he called a thorn in his flesh, this weakness that he couldn't seem to get rid of. He prayed about it. And what God said to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power, my strength is made perfect in what? Anyone remember? My strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is most clearly seen in weakness. When you're at your lowest, when you're up against odds that don't make sense, that's when I shine. And then, when you see my help, when you see my strength, you'll know only God could have done it. (laughs) Our principle today, we'll call it the Gideon Principle. To the the degree that we see that we can't, what we cannot do, we'll see what only God can do. Let that just soak in for a minute. To the degree that we see what we cannot do, we'll be able to see what only God can do. We said earlier, you know, is it possible... Is it possible that the only way that we find the strength that we need for this life is by admitting our weakness? And God's Word says that's exactly the point. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. This principle is important for a few reasons. And the first one is simply that we cannot be saved without it. That's a big statement. But think about it. As long as you think you're strong enough to save yourself. As long as you think that you can do good enough to save yourself. As long as you think you're worthy. Then you can never be humbled enough to admit that you need a Savior. That it's totally dependent upon the grace of God saving your life and on nothing that you've done. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're here today and you've never really been able to make Jesus the king of your life because you've never been willing to come to grips with your own weakness. And your own inability to fix your life. And maybe you'd be willing to start wrestling with that again today. And I pray that you'll realize that you're never going to be able to fix your life on your own. You're never going to be able to find the peace and the hope that you need in this life on your own. Much less to fix your family's lives. Maybe that's where you're at today. 
And you just need to admit your weakness and accept God's strength in your life for the first time. Or for a second time in a long while. Another thing that I think this that applies from this principle as I was thinking through this and it really ties in to the salvation thing but it's the importance of confession and repentance in our lives and I want to speak especially for a moment to those of us that grew up in the church of God or Nazarene or Wesleyan backgrounds that uh, have what we call a, a, that grew up with what we call a holiness theology and if none of that really makes sense to you and you don't come from that background uh, you are free for the next couple of minutes to think about your lunch plans the rest of us are going to talk about this for just a moment and then we'll call you back in after you figure it out but for those of us that grew up in, in this background some of us were raised and taught that confession and repentance shouldn't really be a part of your life because once you're saved and you're sanctified, there shouldn't be anything to confess. You know what I'm saying? Some of us, you know, we grew up with that either impression or, or specifically taught to us. Confession and repentance is something that you do when you come to Christ. It's a one-time deal. Once you have the Holy Spirit, there shouldn't be anything more to confess or repent from. And I don't want to get into all the, the nitty gritty of that today. That's another message for another time. We'd be here far too long. And uh, we've got folks working on their lunch plans right now. So, what we want to do is, I want to just point out that confession and repentance are talked about from front to back of the Bible not just for people who are coming to faith in God for the first time, but for God's people, period. And we read it in the Psalms time and again, prayers of repentance and confession, and we read it in the New Testament. Jesus taught us to pray, prayers of confession and repentance. The apostles wrote to churches, instructing them to do so, to churches, instructing them to do so, not to pagan people who needed to confess and repent for the first time. And so it needs to be a part of our life. And this principle shows us why. Because confession and repentance are what reminds us of our weakness, increasingly so. As we grow in this practice of confessing our weaknesses to God, admitting our need for His help, asking His help and helping us to live better lives, a different way. As we grow in that, we grow in the understanding of just how weak we are. And the weaker we understand our situation to be, the stronger and greater and mightier He appears. And we see that in the world all around us, don't we? I mean, just the darker the room gets, the brighter that little light seems to be. And the more we understand our great need for God, then the more we'll understand His greatness and His strength. And the more joy we'll have in our salvation. And the more peace we'll have. And the more we'll hold on and rest in His grace and His love and His mercy for us. 
And so I just want to say to those of you, many of you, you know, many of us have been Christians a long time. But there's still yet things for us to learn. And it may be that you stand here today and you need to learn or relearn about confession and repentance and what that looks like in your life. And as the Apostle Paul would say it, I would just say, that doesn't mean go out and sin so you have something more to confess. <laughs> that means to recognize where you've still got room to grow. Confess it to God. And repent, asking Him to help you live a different way. Talk to Him about how you're not treating your spouse as well as you should. How you haven't been as self-controlled as you know you should. How you haven't been as patient with your child as you know you should. You haven't been very loving to that co-worker that drives you nuts. <laughs> Confess it to God. Repent. Ask His Spirit to help you live a different way. And in practicing that regularly in our prayers, just as Jesus taught us to do, we're going to come to grips with our own weakness and our own reliance on the strength of God instead. And one last thing from this principle, and everybody come back, hopefully you had time to get your lunch plans worked out if that wasn't you, but one last thing, and this covers all of us. At some point in your life, if you haven't already gotten there, and maybe you're there today, you're going to come to a point where you feel like you're standing there in front of this huge enemy camp with 300 men holding pots. It may be cancer. It may be, you know, financial ruin. It may be that your career path you thought you're on has been completely derailed and you don't know what you're going to do for a job or a career, how you're going to provide for your family. It could be just relational wreckage. We've all faced some of that at some point. In your family, friends, with a spouse, with an ex-spouse, with kids and stepkids and all the things that we deal with in this world. Sometimes there's just relational wreckage that seems like it's going to just defeat us. Whatever it is, there's going to be a time in your life and it's because we're all ultimately not strong enough to handle everything life throws at us, whether we think we are or not. And there's going to be a time in your life where you face something, whether it's health or finances or relationships. You're going to face something that's too big for you. And you'll have to decide at that time, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to pretend like the world does that I can handle this on my own? Or am I finally going to admit my weakness, my need for help, and my need for the strength of God in my life? Think about this for a moment. If you never had a major health concern, you'd probably begin to think you're invincible. I don't need God. I'm fine. 
If you never had that moment of where the finances are beyond tight, and you don't see how it's going to add up, then you might start thinking you can provide for yourself just fine. You don't need God. If you, you know, if your career is just only up, 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 you're going to start thinking you're pretty smart. You're pretty capable. I can handle this on my own. I don't need God. If your relationships are all just perfect, smooth sailing all the time, you might start thinking you're pretty cool. <laughs> I must be all right. Everybody likes me and gets along with me just fine. Don't need help. It's those times that are opportunities to choose faith. That while the rest of the world likes to pretend they're tough and looks and says, look at those religious people, they just need a crutch. You ever heard that one? <laughs> yeah, when your foot's broken, you need a crutch. <laughs> Mine's God. He helps me out. His strength is perfect when I'm weak. And we have these chances that come along in life. And when we're in them, they don't feel like, oh yeah, glad, glad I got this chance. But they're chances for our faith to grow deeper in our realization that we are in fact unable to handle all that life is going to throw our way. But we have a God who's completely able to handle it. And as we grow in our understanding of this, then we're going to grow, like I say, in our worship. is going to become richer. And our joy is going to become fuller. And this Christian life is going to mean so much more because we're coming to grips with our own weakness in such a way that we'll see what only God can do. So think about today. What weakness do you need to admit? Or weaknesses? <laughs> Feel free to write it on the back of your note card today if you want. What weaknesses do you need to admit today? Just reflect on your life for a moment. This is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? The unsavable are saved. Those who couldn't fix themselves are transformed by the power of God. Lives left in utter wreckage and heartbreak are mended back together. I mean, we're going to take an offering for Mercy Ministries later today. And isn't that what they do? They find girls whose lives have become so broken apart and hurt and messed up that they're finally able to admit their complete and utter weakness. And then Mercy Ministries puts them in a place where they can see what only God can do in their lives. 
And you see story after story that girls come and they tell of how God completely transformed their lives in such a way that they could never have done without His power and His strength. When we as a church prepare to admit our weaknesses and pray to see what only God can do, what are the possibilities? Is it possible that you know a church with an average attendance around 85 could change their community? Most people would probably tell you not really. Is it possible that many people's lives could be transformed in this era and changed for eternity because of this church? Well, it's happened in the past. We've seen people's lives changed, haven't we? That's to say that more and more of them can't be changed through the power of God working through His people. I mean, most people would probably look at this church and hopefully we all would look at this church and say, wow, almost $35,000 pledged towards faith promise. I think that deserves an only God moment, huh? Or six baptisms in the last month? I think that deserves an only God moment. It is so neat to be able to stand back and see what God can do in your life and in the life of His church. When we're willing to say, you know, we can't. We're not smart enough. We're not strong enough. We're not powerful enough. We don't have all the right schemes and plans and strategies and tactics. But we have a God whose strength and power is made perfect in weakness. His grace is sufficient. I want to ask you to pray with me about something that I've been increasingly praying about with regards to our church. And uh, I made a list way back when I was preparing to come here as your pastor, it was over a year ago now, uh, that just listed several things that I felt like needed to happen if we were going to be in a position to grow as a church uh, and to add young families. I mean, that's been something that's been on the heart of this church for a while, is because you know, we were able to look around and say, we need to, you know, if we're going to sustain vibrant ministry into the next generations, we need some more of the next generations in here. And so as I was thinking and brainstorming and praying about what needs to happen, there were several things that came to mind. And a lot of, you know, several of them we've checked off already or, you know, making great progress on. But one of them that I'm really praying about because I think it's one of the most important ones and I really just don't know what to do about it. And that's our children's ministry. And we have some awesome volunteers in our children's ministry that give up their time regularly. On Wednesday nights, they give up their time for a month at a time. On, on Sunday mornings, they're back in the children's church on a rotating basis. But we live in a time and a place where young families, and you can criticize it if you want, but that's what I don't think we would because we care about the kids too. They want a place for their kids where it feels like their kids are getting something consistently awesome, you know? And we're doing 
the best we can with the resources we have. And our volunteers are awesome. But even they would say, we'd love to have a point person, you know, that could really make this their heart's cry and their passion that would help equip us as volunteers, you know, to, to do even better. Just a consistent face for our children's ministry that the kids would have a consistent face and the parents would have a consistent face. And if we, uh, you know, the parents that are new could meet this person or, you know, but we just don't have the resources at this point to be wise financial stewards by like hiring a children's pastor in addition to the other staff and the things we have going on. It just the board, we just don't feel like it would be wise stewardship at this point just to go hire someone we can't pay a salary for, you know. But we need somebody or something maybe God has dreamed up different than what we have conceived to take our children's ministry to the next level and to be a place of you know, vibrant ministry for kids that parents that might be looking for a church home. You know, a lot of parents find themselves out of church for a long time and have walked away from God and they have kids and they start thinking, maybe I need to get my kid back in church. You know, the children's garden, they see those parents a lot, I think. That's part of the reason they bring their kids to children's garden. But they also, they start to feel this need for their kids to learn about God the way they did when they were kids. and So we have this chance to minister to young families, but it would help a ton if we could ramp our children's ministry up a notch or two. And so, I hope I'm being clear that how, how much I appreciate our volunteers and what they're doing. And it's not about that at all. But like I say, even they would appreciate having some consistent, you know, a point person that's a consistent source of help. And so I've just been praying that God would do what only God can do. And in His timing and in His way, probably in a way that I wouldn't have foreseen it happening or you wouldn't have foreseen it happening, that He would work something out to help our children's ministry grow so that we can reach more young families that need the gospel of Christ in their life. And so I just ask you to just begin partnering with me and praying for that. What might God have in store for our children's ministry? This church loves kids. We love kids. There's so much time given to our kids and money given towards our kids. And I know we'd all love to see that. We just don't know what it needs to look like or how we'd get there. And that's a good time to just admit it. And then hope to see what only God can do. So that's something practical we can do. Just ask you to partner with me in that. What weakness do you need to admit today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you confound the wise of this world by taking what is weak to show off your greatest strength. God, we confess our weakness, our inadequacy, our deep need for you. Holy Spirit, Help us to rely more and more on you and your strength. And may we ever be very quick to give you all the credit and the praise that you alone deserve. So that we can all say only God. I pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.